We can turn to uh, John 17. We're entering uh, not just a, a new chapter within John's Gospel, uh, but sort of a new uh, phase of John's Gospel. Um, he's no longer talking to his disciples. He's going to talk to his Father. And that is significant for us to keep in mind. Um, we're just doing the first five verses this morning. And so here, listen. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorify you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Let's pray. Glorious Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation that we might know you better. Enlighten our eyes, the eyes of our hearts, in order that we may know the hope to which you have called us, that we might know the riches of your glorious inheritance in the saints, that we might know your incomparably great power for us who believe. We ask this because Jesus has come, has died, and lives again forever and ever. Amen. Uh, when I was a uh, brand new Christian, uh, as many brand new Christians are, I was completely clueless. <laughs> I knew almost nothing, uh, basically. And uh, I was of the reading sort, and so I worked in a bookstore, and so because of that I would occasionally look at the shelves in that bookstore, and I bought some very unhelpful books, I think, because of that. And I remember one time I was in Kenmore Square, um, and there was a Christian bookstore there, and again, remember, I know nothing. I know I don't know, have no clue who I should read or what I shouldn't read. And so I walked into this bookstore, I think it was called Logos, and uh, so walked in there in Kenmore Square, wandered around and saw this book that looked interesting, because it you know, had sold lots of copies. Okay? Don't jump the conclusions yet. <laughs> because this actually was probably one of the most important books that I ever purchased and read. It is a book that I, uh, you know, I don't have my original copy because up there was a, a revised edition that came out and I bought that and I've uh, read that a couple of times as well. And the book was J.I. Packer's. Knowing God. Not an easy book to read, but as I looked back when I was in seminary, I realized as I read it again, wow, it's all here. <laughs> all these things that I've come to grow and appreciate are found in this book. That uh, the idea of we come to know God because He makes himself known, and he makes himself known primarily in his Son and through his work for us 
on Calvary as well as his earthly ministry. And so Knowing God was probably one of the most important books that I've ever read. And when we listened to, hopefully we listened, uh, to Hosea chapter 4, we saw why knowing God is so important. Because there we heard how they had no knowledge of God because they had rejected in themselves the, the knowledge of God. And so God was going to forget them whom they had forgotten. And so knowing God is a very important thing as we shall see as we go through this text this morning. The big idea, however, is slightly different. It is that Father and Son are glorified in our salvation. And that's where we're going to spend a lot of our time. And we're going to start with the fact that the Father glorifies the Son in our salvation. As I noticed, there is a shift that takes place here at the beginning of chapter 17. He shifts from talking to the disciples to now he's talking to the Father, but he keeps in mind the words he has just spoken to his disciples. That, that idea of take heart. Be of courage, because I have overcome the world. He's now going to pray in light of that. He's not disconnected from what he he says there. But now he's saying it, he's praying these things in light of that fact. He lifts his eyes to heaven, which was the common posture of prayer as he does this. And so I want us to remember that Jesus believed in both the providence of God... And prayer. I say the providence of God precisely because he speaks as though it's already happened. That his, his coming impending death is not an accident, as we see in Acts chapter 2. The apostles talk about it, how it was foreordained. Okay? God is at, the Father is at work. He's controlling the circumstances of Jesus' life and that his earthly ministry had a particular time frame. That earthly ministry, that frame is now done and it's time for the cross to come. The appointed hour has arrived. We talk about that sometimes in, sep- in uh, presbytery meetings. The, the, uh, the hour of the day or things like that. He specifically says, the hour has come. He's recognizing God's control over these circumstances, and yet he prays. This reminds me of another great book, Doug Kelly's book, If God Already Knows, Why Pray? Jesus believed and acted on the basis of God's providence, in part by praying. We see from the Westminster Confession of Faith, which I don't have quoted down there, but that God's decrees or His providence includes not just the ends, but the means by which they will be accomplished. For instance, if you are sick and God ordains that you shall live, He ordains the way in which you shall be healed from that illness. Whether you shall need to go through surgery or you will need to, what medication you might be on, whatever it might be, He's in control of that. He appoints not just that you get better, but how you get better. And so while sometimes we don't like the process of getting better, 
some of my children really don't like pills. That is God's ordained means by which you are made better. And so Jesus recognizes certain things, but then prays that they would come to pass. And so when we're sick, we should pray. In addition to taking, going to the doctor and taking medication that, are, that is prescribed, we should also pray. These two things are not opposed to one another. And so I want to say to you that if the sovereignty of God means for you that you don't pray, what I want to say is you don't understand God's sovereignty well yet. There's still room for you to grow in your understanding, precisely so you grow in prayer, as Jesus does here. Let's get to his prayer. He says, glorify your son. And so we see initially here that the son is not seeking to glorify himself. He is looking to the father to glorify him, to give glory to him. He's not saying that he wants the Father to praise him, but as D.A. Carson puts it, to clothe him in splendor. Now that's an interesting phrase, isn't it? To clothe someone in splendor. (coughs) I've been thinking a lot about the story of Joseph, precisely because... uh, I'm going to be on a radio show that's taping this week talking about the story of Joseph. And one of the things that takes place in the story of Joseph is that his father, Jacob, exalts him or glorifies him by giving him the coat of many colors which set Joseph apart from the rest of his brothers and indicated that he was going to be the heir. The privileged place. And so the, the coat of many colors, which would have been very long, which, meant, which means he's not working in the fields, okay, was a way of clothing him in splendor or exalting him above his brothers. And so Jesus is asking that the Father would, in a sense, clothe him with a robe that indicates his true status and exalt him, lift him up, separate him from the rest of humanity. Why would he do this? Why would he ask that the Father would glorify him? As you have given him authority over all flesh. And so Jesus recognized, or prays here, that the Father has in fact given him authority over all flesh. That is a part of the splendor that is going to be given to Jesus. We see this is not the only place where we recognize that authority over all flesh or humanity is given to him. In Matthew 28, after the resurrection, we see Jesus saying to his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And then he issues the Great Commission. We see in Revelation 2, when he's speaking to the church of Thyatira, 
that the one who conquers and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with the rod of iron, as when earthen pots, pots are broken in pieces. Okay, and now he's alluding to Psalm 2 right there. Okay, And he's saying that the one who overcomes shall be like the king in Psalm 2, which is really Jesus, but even as I myself received authority from my Father. And so Jesus is saying there in Revelation 2 that to those who are faithful to him to the end, he gives some of the authority he has received from the Father to those faithful disciples. But I want us to really catch that idea. He's received this from the Father. Part of his exaltation is authority over all of humanity. Why has Jesus been given authority over all humanity? He continues as he prays that the purpose of this authority is to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And so Jesus has authority over all of humanity in order that he might give eternal life to this group of people that the Father has already given to him. He came, he was sent by the Father to gain salvation for that group of people, and we've alluded to that numerous times in this sermon, that he has sheep that are his. And now it's time for him to lay down his life for those sheep. They've always been his. It's not like there's any uncertainty about the, the, who these sheep are from God's perspective. There certainly is from our perspective. But what is going on here? What's going on here is that Jesus is praying that God would keep the covenant promises that he made to him in eternity. That's what's going on here. Okay? The Father had promised Jesus authority. The Father had promised Jesus a people. And it was contingent on his saving work on the cross. And Jesus is saying, it is now to the cross I go. I am being faithful to the promise I made you in that eternal covenant. And now be faithful to the promises you made to me in that very same eternal covenant of redemption. That's what's going on here. And so we see here something of the design of salvation. We see something of the work of the cross. And that it is not for a, a just anybody. It is specifically for the ones the Father had given him. This idea of particular redemption. In other words... For those of you who have seen Schindler's List, Jesus is not going to be like Oscar Schindler. At the end of the movie, uh, you know they're they're putting some people, some of the Jewish prisoners, upon the train, and Oscar is beside himself. 
Because he recognized that he kept back some of his wealth. And that wealth meant that there were people going on that train to their destruction. And so he looked at what he owned and he said, this watch, this watch is two more people. My car, my car is ten people. He began to see his wealth in terms of the number of people he could have purchased life for. That's not Jesus. All those whom he has purchased from among them shall be brought to salvation. All of them, because they are the ones the Father has given to him. It's the same group. He loses none, as we saw earlier in this book, of this this gospel. He loses none that the Father has given to him. Not a one. We rest secure in Christ if we are in Christ. And so Calvin notes that Christ receives authority not so much for himself as for the sake of our salvation. Or as R.C. Sproul notes, that I am elected in Christ Jesus as one whom the Father gave to him. And so our salvation really rests upon election, but we have to remember it's an election that's in Christ in light of what Jesus would do to save sinners. There's no salvation apart from Christ, and there's no salvation apart from his work. And so we see, as we, at least I see, as I think about this, is that prayer is a covenantal activity. That's how it's intended to be. In other words, what I'm saying is, we ask God to fulfill the covenant promises that he made to us in Jesus Christ. We're saying, I am united to Christ by faith, and so give to me all that you've promised those who are in Christ. This is similar to what we see when Moses was praying for the people of Israel, particularly after the whole incident with the golden calves. He's basically saying, keep your promises. Don't cast them away, but keep your covenant promises that you made to Abraham. Keep that. And so a lot of what prayer ought to be is connected with Scripture because we see there the promises of God and we're asking Him to keep them. So prayer is a profoundly covenantal activity. Jesus continues with this. He says, Glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world was. Now that was really kind of, that's my little translation of the word they put existed. Um, It's the word to be. Before the world be. (laughs) Jesus had glory. And we see that in John 1, 1, and 1, 2. Okay? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And through the Word, God made whatsoever He has made. And so Jesus is saying, bring me back to that glory 
restore the glory that I had with you before time began. Why would he have to ask that? He asked that because of the incarnation. The incarnation obscures or clouds some of his glory, which is good. Think of the sun for a moment. Who can look directly at the sun? None of us. We need to cloud it. So we need an opaque lens to kind of make the light of the sun, the glory of the sun, so to speak, bearable to our eyes. We cannot look directly at the sun. It will destroy your eyes. We can see the glory of the sun in part on a nice sunny day, but not by looking directly at the sun. That's bad. Okay? But the glory of the sun is obscured on a cloudy day, is it not? It's even more obscured at night. It still has glory. It's still shining in a way that if you looked at it, you would go blind. But you cannot behold it. And so in the incarnation, it is as though the clouds are there. It's a partly cloudy day, so to speak, so that the glory of the sun is obscured by his humanity. But here, as we begin to go to the cross and his death, it is as though night is going to come, and the glory of Jesus from our perception will be completely obscured. And he's saying, let the glory shine. Bring it back. He wants the glory that he used to have with the Father before he took on flesh and bone. And what we, go, what we see when we read Philippians 2 is that the Father is going to do this. Therefore, God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. He receives again the glory that He had before the world was. So, preparing to die, Jesus prays for the Father to glorify Him in and through our salvation. Because even in Philippians 2, we see He's exalted because He was obedient unto death, death on a cross. So, secondly, that the Son glorifies the Father in our salvation. Why does the Son want the Father to keep His promise? He says that the Son may glorify you. And so while Jesus wants him to be, Himself to be glorified by the Father, the reason He wants to be glorified by the Father is so that the Father may be glorified by the Son. The Father receives glory in part by being a promise-keeping God. He reveals His character as being faithful to His Word. Some of us are not very good at keeping our Word. But God is a God of His Word. He keeps it all. Jesus is, as it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, God's yes to all of His promises. And so the Father wants, sorry, the Son wants the Father to receive glory 
by how he uses the authority that's granted to him. It's connected, all of this, logically in Jesus' prayer. And sometimes that's a little obscured. Let's kind of do this. Okay. Glorify your Son, reason being that the Son may glorify you, since, which probably is better translated just as, he's drawing a comparison here, just as you have given him authority over flesh in order that or, or because or in order to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And so, glorify me so that I might glorify you just as you glorified me by giving me authority and I glorify you by saving these people you've given me. Does that make sense here? So we see that he reveals the Father as merciful in this. That our salvation reveals the the mercy and compassion and kindness of the Father. We see as well, uh, as we go to the end of this uh, portion of his prayer, that um, Jesus fulfills the Father's will. That phrase, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. That work of revealing who you are. uh, That work of calling sinners to repentance. That work of dying on the cross to save these sinners. In other words, as the incarnate Son and mediator, Jesus reveals who the Father is by His words and by His works and brings glory to Him as He does it. Okay? Let's remember for a moment. Repeatedly, Jesus says in this Gospel that He did and said only what the Father had commanded him to do and say. Jesus doesn't go rogue. He's the obedient son, unlike Adam, God's first son, who was disobedient. Not in the same way as Jesus was the son. But you understand what I'm saying. And so Jesus glorifies the Father. Think of it this way. When you go to a restaurant, inevitably there are children. And what happens when those children act up? Who do you blame? What's wrong with those parents? (laughs) I mean, they're kids being kids, right? Where are the parents to prevent them from being wild, obnoxious children? Okay. In the same way, when children are well-behaved at a restaurant, often someone will go to the parents, your children were so well-behaved. Thank you. Or you know, you're doing a good job or something like that. There's a measure of glory, shall we say, that goes to the parents. The faithfulness of the Son, the obedience of the Son, 
redounds in glory upon the Father. He's the spitting image of his dad, as we see in numerous places in Scripture. Jesus is the perfect image of God, who reveals the Father perfectly, which is his calling, in the, as we see in the first chapter of this gospel. He clothes the Father, so to speak, in splendor, or reveals that splendor to us. For instance, we see in this odd, this odd turn of phrase in Romans 6, We were buried, therefore, with Christ by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead, by the glory of the Father. That's what I mean by odd. Raised from the dead by the glory of the Father. His resurrection is by and for the glory of the Father. We see this as well in uh, Philippians chapter 2, because it doesn't end with every knee bowing and confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord, but that this is done, as it says in, chapter, in verse 11, to the glory of God the Father. The Father and the Son do not compete for glory. They rejoice in each other's glory because they love each other. And so the Son's restoration to glory also results in glory to the Father. So, as an obedient Son, Jesus brings glory to the Father who, who gave Him the work to do for our salvation. Salvation, thirdly, is knowing the Father and the Son. And now we get back to the beginning, so to speak. The Father and Son glorify one another in the salvation of sinners, and here he describes what that salvation is. He calls it eternal life. He has the authority to grant them eternal life. This points to the enduring quality of life that is granted to us by grace. It's not merely immortality that we live forever, but it goes something far different and more significant. But this life extends beyond the grave. As we were talking about the story of Joseph, uh, we were talking about the end and where he made his brother's promise, bring my bones back. Okay, And we had... We had gone through the show one time to make sure we were doing okay time-wise, and we were talking a little bit about that, and I said, remember, guys, those dry bones are going to live. It's not simply that those bones are going back because he believes God is going to give Canaan to his people, but also those bones will live because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Joseph is not dead Joseph now is in the presence of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, just as uh, Jesus talks about himself as being the God of the living. He's God of the living Joseph. And one day he'll be the God of the resurrected Joseph. Okay? This idea of eternal life. But what does he mean even by this? That they know you, 
the only true God. He says that eternal life is knowing God. There is no dilemma, as some people seem to think today, between religion and relationship when it comes to Jesus. The Bible says a lot of positive things about religion. Okay? But it's only good if we're related to Jesus, if we're in relationship to Jesus. Okay? It's not as though, oh, I love Jesus, therefore I can do any old thing I want to do. But because I love him, I worship him, I serve him, I obey him. D.A. Carson and thinking about the connection here between eternal life and the knowledge of God, says that eternal life is best seen not as everlasting life, but as knowledge of the everlasting one. And so eternal life is knowing God. If you don't know God, you don't have eternal life. And this idea of knowing God has this concept of the never-ending, because God's eternal, covenant relationship with God. Okay? For instance, just this week I had, uh, there's someone I know, I use that term loose, I'd never met them, I've never talked to them on the phone, I'd interacted with them on the internet. The glories of uh, blogs is how we met, and then Facebook. And uh, she lives up in uh, Washington State, and uh, she goes, Steve, do you know David Scott? We've been going to his church for the last couple weeks. Oh, I know David. Went to RTS with him, worked in the bookstore with him. I know David. But there's a sense in which I don't know David. I know who he is, but I'm not in, in the kind of relationship that this is talking about. It's not like he's one of my best friends. Okay? Uh, same thing, R.C. Sproul, I know him on one hand. I've talked with him. We've rode in elevators together. We worked in the same place. You know, that, that was an odd moment. You know, you're kind of like, I'm here with my boss. I don't know what to say to him. Because <laughs> I don't like golf. I should have asked him about baseball. It would have been great. Um, okay. I don't know him in the sense that R.C. has never shared his soul with me. I don't know what troubles R.C. I can imagine, perhaps. But we never sat down and had those kind of face-to-face -face long conversations about our sin and about the greatness of the Savior and, and where we struggle and, and showing each other, you know, showing you know, my heart to him and his heart to me. And so I don't know David Scott or R.C. Sproul in those ways. And that is the way that Jesus is talking about here. That you don't just have an intellectual knowledge that God exists, but that you know God. Because you know what he's done, and you know his heart, and you know his promises, which reveal his heart. 
And you also reveal yourself to Him, as it says there in Galatians 4, that you have come to know God, or rather be known by God. There's a a self-giving, a self-entrusting that takes place. Okay? Now, this idea of knowing God is, is not novel to John 17. Okay? This is the promise that was held forth in the various covenants. The promise that was given in Genesis 17 that I will be their God and they will be my people. Meaning, we will know one another. And it's covenantal because it's exclusive. I am their only God and they are my only people. Just like we think of with marriage. Amy is my only wife. I, unfortunately for her, am her only husband. Okay? She's probably thinking, yeah, just what I need, two people like Steve, right? (laughs) There's an exclusivity in this relationship that is involved in this idea of knowing that the marriage relationship is a reflection of. And just like in the marriage relationship, we're changed. God's never changed. But in the marriage relationship, we are changed. Amy is not the same person that... She was when I met her, and neither am I the same person I was when she met me. If it's a good marriage, that means we've improved. (laughs) If it's a not-so-good marriage, it means we're probably not improving. We're probably descending into greater sin, okay? But that's the idea, okay? And so we see this in Genesis 17, this, this, I will be their God, they will be my people. We see this in the promise of the new covenant in Jeremiah 31, which is repeated in Hebrews. Uh, and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each, each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, says the the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and will remember their sin no more. And so here we have that aspect of the gospel. It's necessary for him to forget our sin, to cover our iniquity in order that we might know him. We see as well Habakkuk 2. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And he says, he continues, and knowing, I have supplied that because that's the intention. There's an ellipsis there. For those of you who were in Sunday school last week, ellipsis. Uh, Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. This is not an either or. You can know the Father or you can know the Son. It's a both and. You must know the Father and the Son, in order to have eternal life. Now we recognize that our knowledge right now, as it says in 1 Corinthians 13, is dimly, we see in a mirror dimly, but then we will see Jesus face to face. Why do we see dimly? Because, of course, His glory would destroy us now. No man may see God and live. But Paul continues, Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. And so what Paul is saying is, you are fully known by God. 
He knows the best about you, and he knows the worst about you. Everything there is to know, he knows. You know something about him if you're a Christian. But you don't know everything about him as a Christian. As Cornelius Van Til might say, you have real knowledge of God, but you don't have full knowledge of God. But when you see him face to face, then, as much as a human being can, you will have comprehensive knowledge of God. That's our hope in the gospel. Not just the pardon of sin. The pardon of sin is a means for us to know God. And so the gospel, as John Piper declares, is not simply the forgiveness of sins, but the gospel is God. That we get God. And we enjoy Him forever. Our eternal life is not some sort of, as I said, immortality where we're just people who never die and run around and explore the world and all that kind of stuff. It is a life that exists in which we gain knowledge and enjoy fellowship with God. It is both the Father and the Son because we only know the Father through the Son who was sent to reveal Him. And so, I want to encourage you that one of your goals in Bible reading, in worship, in prayer, okay, should include, it's not the only thing, but it should include this notion of knowing God. You don't have to read J.I. Packer's book though I do recommend it, okay? But we're supposed to approach this book with that idea of, I want to know you. You know me. Show me who you are. And what did he do to Moses, when Moses asked that? He showed him who he is. And within the pages of this book, you will find out who he is. And you will be forced to say, do I believe that's who he is? Do I love the re- that's who he is? And if I do, I'm growing in my faith, my hope, and my love. Because I'm growing in the knowledge of God. Not an abstract, but a personal knowledge of God. All right. Knowing God was, aside from the Bible, <laughs> the most, one of the most important book, books that I've read because it is about how God has worked so that we can know Him in Jesus Christ. And He brings glory to His Son as Savior through His death and resurrection. And the Son gives glory to the Father who sent Him because He gave Him authority and a people to save as his very own. And so knowing God is the essence and the point of eternal life. And if you don't want to know God, you really just want immortality, not biblical salvation. 
And to steal a phrase from one of my professors, you think about that. Let's pray. Father, I could not do justice to those words that Jesus prayed. There was far more there than I even behold that I can grasp in my small mind. But we thank you for this knowledge of Father and Son glorifying each other. We thank you for this knowledge of eternal life, being knowing you. So, Father, help us to know you through the Son. Give us the Holy Spirit that we might understand the Scriptures so that we can know you. So we can know you through what you declare about yourself and what you have done for us and for your people through history. Help us to know you. And Father, I pray for those who don't long to know you, that you would work by the power of the Spirit to give them a longing to know you. That you would uh, grant them a faith that's hungry for you. That sees knowing Christ as the most important thing that they exist for. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.